don't know if you've ever had the privilege of listening to uh, a great orchestra play music uh, or maybe watch a, a sports team uh, at their finest, at the peak of their performance. But one of the things that they have in common is, is that they work together in a unity that produces something larger, something better than any single individual musician or athlete could ever produce. That, that there's something about them working together in unison. When you listen to that music and, and you hear all of the different elements of the orchestra playing together harmoniously, perfectly, right? Everyone's on time. Everyone is, is, is on beat. They just, it, it just sounds amazing. And, and it's, it's almost transcendent. It, just, it almost takes you to another plane of enjoyment when you, when you see and you hear that. And it's great to hear a solo musician sometimes, but there's just, there's just something about when 40 or 50 adults are all working together. Or a team, a football team, a basketball team, they're, they're just, they're clicking, they're just, they know what each other's thinking, they, they pass the ball at the right times, they, they do everything at the right moment. It's, it's a beautiful thing to watch and to experience. And Paul this morning is, is calling us as a church to, to do the same thing, to, to live out the gospel in a unity that, that is transcended it, it it just it, it's something that the outside world is going to be blown away by not not by one individual preaching hard or or one individual serving the poor hard or or one person going out and and caring for the elderly instead to see the unity of all of that happening at once in lockstep, we're working together. That's what Paul is calling us to in this passage. And this, the book of Ephesians, as we said in the beginning, is kind of, you can divide it into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 is the why, and the rest of the book is the what, right? This is, we understand why we do what we do, but now, what do we do? In, in other words, knowing these theological truths how then shall we live as Christians? Last week we finished the, the first part of this book, and, and Paul finishes his why portion of the book with a prayer, praying that we would be able to do this, asking the Holy Father to empower us to be able to live the life as, as Christians that we need to live. So as Paul has unpacked the glorious truths of our inheritance as a Christian in chapters 1 through 3, Paul's now going to transition us to cover these, what, what living these glorious truths out should look like day to day, week to week, year to year. And this order is important for us to note. One, one theologian put the order well when he said this, it is in vain to tell the dead man to rise and walk until the principle of animation to be of, of animation be restored. One must be a child of God before he can be a servant of God. Pardon and purity, faith and holiness are inseparably united. Ethics, therefore, follow theology. So understanding what God has done for you, 
understanding the immense amount of love that your heavenly Father has for you should then animate you, empower you to live the moral, ethical life that he is calling us to live. It's not the other way around. It's not, I'm going to live an ethical, moral life, and then God is going to be pleased with me. That is a false gospel, my friends. That that is a, a gospel of works. But the gospel of the Bible is that God so loved us. And because he did, now we go to work. So it's important to notice Paul's timing and his his order here. And and Paul is calling us, calls this, this living out of these glorious truths, walking worthy of our calling. This idea of of walking worthy of our calling starts here in chapter 4. It's going to end in chapter 5, verse 21. So I I encourage you, if you're reading along with us in in your Bible, don't just read the section that we're kind of covering. Go from 4 to 521. I want you to get the context of of all that's involved. Because again, from Sunday to Sunday, we're going to focus on certain elements but, but Paul has something much bigger than any of these individual elements. And if you, if you don't get the whole context, you're going to miss that. And so I want to encourage you to read 4 through 1 to all the way to 521 this week as you're studying and praying over the next really couple of weeks as we preach through this. This morning, we're only going to look at a small portion of this overall section of Scripture. We're going to cover verses 1 through 6. And then next week, we're going to cover verses 7 through 16. So In some ways, this is going to be a two-part message because this is kind of all one thought, but there's so much here to unpack. I didn't want us to be here that long today, so we're breaking it up. Um, But both messages are going to cover walking worthy of our calling in unity. That's going to be the theme of these two messages, walking worthy of our calling, specifically in unity. So we're going to walk through these six verses like I did last week, and we'll kind of read them as we go. And I want to start by looking at verse 1. Paul says, I, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Notice here Paul's words of encouragement before he starts laying out what this walk looks like. Right? First, notice there that, that Paul uses the word therefore. So he's, he's helping us to understand that this, this is connecting back to what he has already said. In other words, because of what I said in chapters 1 through 3, therefore, now we are going to act this way. It's a connecting word. Anytime you see that therefore in Scripture, I always encourage you, go back and read what he said right before that. Because this goes with that. It's, it's not a separate thing. And Paul wants us to see that the way to ethical living is based on the gracious redemption and all of the resulting spiritual blessings from God. If we are going to love the way we are called to love, we have to first understand and believe that we were loved. That is the only way we can live the life that Paul is calling us to live. God's work in Christ that he explained in chapters 1 through 3 should empower us to walk worthy in our calling in unity. Second, notice that Paul uses the word urge. Now, Paul could have commanded his readers. 
But he chooses not to. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in this. Right? Why, why doesn't Paul insist on this behavior based on his apostolic authority? He could have. Why didn't he? Because Paul knows that walking worthy of our calling in unity cannot be compelled. It must flow from our hearts. The, the moment you compel it, it is no longer love. We, we cannot walk worthy of our calling out of a fearful subservience to his commands. That, that's why Paul focuses for three chapters on the love of God, the gifts of God, the graciousness of God, super abundantly more than we can ever think or imagine. That's what has to motivate us. And Paul knows that. Fear is a horrible long-term motivator. It's a great short-term motivator, but a horrible long-term motivator. And Paul knows that. Which is why he's given us these three chapters outlining the goodness of God and all the gifts our God gives us before urging us to follow God and walk worthy of our calling in unity. The same is true this morning, friends. I, I cannot command you to follow God. I cannot command you to live an ethical life. It'd be a lot easier sometimes, I think, if I could, but, but I can't. And parents, I, I, I hope you pick up on the wisdom of Paul here, because you can't either. Now, you can fear them, you can shame them, you can guilt them, and that's great in the short term. But the moment they get away from you, see ya. It's why so many kids get out of the house and don't want anything to do with their parents. Because it was never about love. And Paul, he understands that. And he, he, he's like, look, I, I, I'm not commanding you, I'm not, but I'm urging you. Like I, I want you to have this life that I'm talking about. I want you to experience the fullness of God. I'm encouraging, I'm exhorting you, urging you. Third, notice that Paul calls himself what he calls himself. He calls himself the prisoner in the Lord. Now, a couple of things I want you to see from this title. First, this is not something Paul is, is bragging about, but instead is his current state of existence. Right? I, I, I've... I've heard people say, you know, oh, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. And I'm like, you're not in prison. You're not chained to a wall somewhere. Right? Paul, Paul is literally a prisoner. In fact, he's writing this letter as a prisoner. And, and again, I understand it's well-meaning that, that the Christians are saying this, I'm a prisoner for the Lord, and, and they're trying to make this a metaphor thing, but it's not a metaphor for Paul. <laughs> this is a fact, Right? But what's amazing about that is how he finishes it. So he is a prisoner. That is a fact of, of his current situation. But not to Rome. Right? He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner to Rome. I'm a prisoner in the Lord. See, Paul has no concept of secular and sacred like we do sometimes. In every aspect of his life, he is in the Lord. 
even in incarceration. One commentator said it well about this verse. He says, Paul wants us to know that the iron which lay upon his limb had not entered into his soul. So for Paul, this state of imprisonment is just another state in which he is in the Lord. There's encouragement in that. Some of you are walking this morning through some very difficult times. But I want to remind you that you're not walking in those difficult times alone. You're walking in those difficult times in the Lord. He is with you. Whatever this trial is, whatever this pain is you're going through, it doesn't get to your soul. Fourth, Paul wants us to walk. This is something we see throughout Paul's writings. 1 Thessalonians 2, 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul means by this, this walking imagery a way of living. As you go about your life from place to place and you walk from place to place, right? He's wanting you to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. Christ has made us free from sin. And with this newfound freedom comes agency and responsibility. Agency means we are no longer enslaved to sin. In other words, for the first time in our lives, when we become Christians, we now have a choice not to sin. Our, our spirit is made alive through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we now can choose. But that comes with a responsibility to choose that, Paul says. You've got to continue to get up and choose to walk in a way that is worthy of your calling. We have the ability through the Spirit to walk differently than before. Ephesians 5, 7-8 reminds us, Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In other words, we walk, used to walk in darkness, stumbling around, but then the light of the Lord was shown in our lives. And just like Paul was blinded by that light, so too are us as Christians. When the light of the Lord shines in our heart and now we have the opportunity, the agency, the responsibility, the ability to choose not to sin. Through His power. Through His Spirit. Fifth and finally in this little introduction, we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling to which you have been called. Paul, by using the word Worthy is pointing out that there is a standard that we need to attain to. That, that, that our lives as Christians should conform to. Paul is saying that because we have been called by God, we should reflect God's glory. In other words, it, it's His calling that we should be reflecting. Not, not our own calling, not what I want to do, but what God wants us to do. What glorifies Him. We see that in the last part where he says, you have been called. The call is God's saving activity through the proclamation of the gospel. When he brings us into the experiential reality of his election. 
I love how one theologian put it on this verse. He said, God's sovereign initiative and human responsibility for living appropriately go hand in hand so that he would not for one moment have expected his earlier stress on predestination and election and even on God's preparation of believers' good works ahead of time to undermine the seriousness with which his exhortion was to be taken. The appeal to live worthy of God's calling presupposes that God's gracious initiative requires a continuous human response and that his call bestows both high privilege and high responsibility. Paul then goes on in verses 2 through 3 to explain four ways that our, our walk should look as Christians. Starting in verse 2, he says, our walk should look like this, with, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's, there's four big ideas Paul has here of, of what our walk what walking in the Lord should look like. The first one are, are, are marked by two words, but, but in, in many ways they are very similar. Paul says we should be marked by humility and gentleness. Both of these characteristics, <clears throat> both of these characteristics would have been seen as a vice, not a virtue in the ancient world. I want you to understand how countercultural the gospel message was in the ancient world. To, to be humble and to be gentle was not seen as something good. Instead, it was seen as something bad. And yet, that is what Paul is calling us to. Humility and gentleness, both of which can be summed up as meekness. Here's, a, here's a, a summary list of elements that one theologian put together to describe what Paul had in mind when he uses humility and gentleness. He says, although meekness is not weakness, let us not lose sight of an essential element, tenderness and sensitivity, a capacity to deal gently and compassionately with others. This this is one of the ways in which you can tell if someone is walking the walk. There is a tenderness and a sensitivity, a capacity to deal gently and compassionately with others. He goes on, he says, an essential element in gentleness is the willingness to allow others to say about me the same things I readily acknowledge before the Lord. In other words, if, if I am confessing my sin and someone calls me out for my sin, I should not get upset about that. I should not get angry with that. A, a humble person understands their sin. They understand their need for a Savior. Because they're not trying to save themselves. And so when someone calls sin a sin in our life, then we, we accept that and we understand that. The meek person is not easily provoked. A meek spirit, like wet tinder, will not easily take fire. Again, as Psalms 38, 12 through 13 says, Those who seek my life lay snares for me. 
and those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction, and they devise treachery all day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear, and I am like a dumb man who does not open his mouth. We're not easily provoked. Meekness is the opposite of hastiness, malice, and revenge. Meekness is living in accordance with the abilities God has given us, neither as if we had more or less, neither pressing ourselves into situations we are not equipped to handle for fear that if we don't, people will lose respect for us, nor shying away from those that we are equipped to handle. Meekness is being like Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. The key to meekness and humility is a healthy acknowledgement of and a submission to the sovereign grace of God. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul puts it like this, for who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Meekness should always be in direct proportion to one's grasp of grace. Pride is the fruit of the lie that what I have, I didn't receive. Meekness or humility is the fruit of the truth that everything is of God. Stott wrote about this, both humility and meekness are essential to the unity Paul has in mind. For pride lurks behind all discord. Pride lurks behind all discord. It doesn't matter how they dress it up. It doesn't matter all of their biblical arguments for it. When it comes to disunity, there's, there's an element of pride lurking in the background. Second, Paul says that we are to be patient or long-suffering. And I like to remind people in counseling, the word long-suffering means to suffer long. <laughs> Another way to say it is that you have a long temper, which is the opposite of a short temper. You see, patience makes allowances for the shortcomings of others. Patience makes allowances for the often exacerbating behaviors of others. Patience means enduring wrongs without losing it, without blowing up in anger. Patience is one of those things that is truly a fruit of the Spirit. I can give you no exercises to increase that. You need to pray and ask God to give that to you. And as if that wasn't hard enough to be humble, gentle, and patient, <laughs> Paul goes on telling us that we need to bear with one another in love. Showing 
tolerance for one another in love is an elaboration of what, of what patience implies. In other words, Paul is taking patience a step further. <laughs> Again, as if patience wasn't hard enough. Now, now Paul's like, hey, all right, now let me push you a little bit farther. I want you to bear with them in love. It's one thing to tolerate another person, right? I, I can patiently tolerate you over there to the side. But to go over there to the side with you and to bear with you whatever it is you're going through, that's a whole, that's, that's completely different. It's something completely different to bear with the weaknesses of others. Now understand when I'm saying weaknesses here, I'm not necessarily saying sins. I'm, I'm just saying the places in which they struggle to know the truth, to believe the truth. It's something completely different to bear with the immaturity of others in a way that they feel valued and loved by you, not looked down upon and judged by you. And, and that's what Paul is calling us to, to bear with one another in love. And then lastly, to eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As Christian, Paul wants us to be eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, you may be thinking, but didn't Paul already say we are a unified body in chapter 2? Yes. Yes, that is true. That is the theological truth. But Paul also wants us to realize that this unity needs to be promoted visibly and publicly. In other words, what is already theologically true needs to become evident in the world. In other words, this isn't just a truth we can believe. Okay, check off. I believe that. And, and Paul's like, all right, you're good. You, you believe that we're one body. Paul says, no, now act like it. Right? This isn't... This isn't just the test on Friday. This is how you actually apply what you've learned. You, you can believe this truth that we are one body, but you can live in a way that says that you do not believe that we are one body. And Paul wants us to do, to live this way, to walk this way in unity so that it is evident to the world. The unity refers here to the Holy Spirit. It, it comes from the Spirit and, and what He has done in bringing us together. And, and there's an urgency in Paul's exhortation, eager to maintain. Make it a priority. Be urgent about it. Make haste. Peace has a bonding effect. It, it enables us to get along and support and maintain one another. Paul wants us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This unity already exists by virtue of what the Spirit has done, but we must be diligently committed to preserving it. Unity, however, as important as it is, it doesn't come at any price, as some people in the church will try to tell you. Unity never comes at the expense of the truth of the gospel. It never does. 
But what are the truths of the gospel on which our unity should be based? To which Paul says, I'm glad you asked, because he's going to give us the answer in verses 4 through 6. It's not a laundry list like some people want to make it into. But Paul says, if we can get, if we can get on the same page with this, then we can find unity. We can find common ground. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Who is over all and through all and in all. In this section of scripture, Paul lays out the elements of which we must unify around. And Paul lists seven elements of, of unity in these verses. But the way I want to kind of land this sermon and, and, and end this sermon is by taking these seven and looking at them from a Trinitarian view. And I don't know if you've noticed me stressing that a lot lately, but, but I want you to understand that the Trinity is woven all throughout Scripture. People say, well, there's no word Trinity in the Bible. No, there's not. But the concept is soaked in Scripture. It's soaked in the way Paul thinks about the world, about the gospel, about our lives as Christians. And here we're going to see even in the way we are unified. So I'm going to group them into three categories. First, God the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, one body, one spirit, one hope. One body here, this is a reference to the church, the, the one body of Christ. One spirit is an obvious reference to the Holy Spirit. And one hope. The hope of his calling earlier in this letter, in chapter 1, verse 18, is a reference to the same reality as the hope of your calling here. It is simply that the former describes it in terms of one who calls, the later in terms of those who are called. So, so Paul starts this discussion in, in chapter 1 of, of those who will be a part that, that God is calling but here he's transitioned, and now you are a called one. You, you are called to live in this hope, the hope of Jesus Christ. Paul's point is that we have been called by God into one hope. We all share one common expectation of what being called by God will bring ultimately in the future. This is, this is the thing that unifies us. That, that the gospel is God making peace with the enemy through his son, Jesus Christ. Outside of what God has done through salvation, we have no hope of being a friend of God, much less part of his family. And yet, because of what Jesus Christ has done, that is our hope. We put our hope in what he has done. Not in what we do, but what he has done. So we see God the Holy Spirit. But then we see in verse 5, God the Son. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
one Lord. This, this is a, a stunning theological reality that the title used here exclusively of Yahweh in the Old Testament is now freely applied by Paul in the New Testament to Jesus Christ. So for those who believe in that heresy that Jesus is a good person, but he's not God, Paul would disagree with them. Paul is calling him by the same title, the same name that the Old Testament Yahweh God was called by. Lord. One Lord, one faith, he says. This refers not to our experience of faith or believing, but to the objective content of what is believed. We, we all have different experiences. One of the things I, I enjoy is, is listening to new members tell me how they came to Christ. It's amazing the diversity. It's amazing all of the different ways that God uses to draw a person's heart to himself. Every one of you has a different experience. But we all have the same objective reality. We were all called, we were all forgiven through the work of one man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he did on the cross to save us. That is the, the one faith. There, there is not one faith for Jewish believers and another faith for Gentile believers. Right? Paul says we are, we are all bound by one body of revealed truth. This is our one faith. Paul has in mind those essential truths revealed in the gospel to which we are all called and the heart of which we should all believe. That, that we should all defend, but that we should all enjoy. The truth of the gospel, one faith in the gospel. But then he goes on and says, one baptism. This reference is most likely to water baptism, the, the public rite by which we make open confession of our faith in the one Lord. One commentator would put it like this, this baptism is one not because it has a single form or is administered on only one occasion, but because it is the initiation into Christ, into the one body, which all have undergone and as such, is a unifying factor. So when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become a believer in Jesus Christ. The next step in obedience is baptism. Right? And one of the things that makes a Baptist a Baptist is we believe in believer's baptism. In other words, Baptism is, re is reserved for one who believes. It, it is not something that can be done in our past and then, oh, now we come to Christ. Now we understand the gospel. But I did it you know, back when I was three or four or five or six or seven in VBS. No. No, it's believer's baptism. 
It's coming to Christ in one faith, in one baptism. We, we had the joy of celebrating Darren's baptism a couple of weeks ago at the pool party. And Darren's story is like so many people's story. Where, where as, as a child, he thought he knew what he was doing. I, I've heard so many kids, and I ask them, you know, well, why did you? Well, all my friends were doing it. Did you believe in the Lord Jesus? Well, no, no, not really, but I mean, I just everybody else was doing it, so I wanted to do it too. And, and we do a disservice in the church sometimes because we don't sit down and talk with people and make sure that they are actually believers before entering into this one baptism. Paul says this is one of those things that, that unifies us. This, this is why... The, the, the sacrament of baptism is so important to the church. And it's not, as, as this commentator wrote, it's, it's not about a single form of administration. That, listen, it's different in different parts of the world. You, you, you go to a place that has a water shortage, you're not going to be filling up a tub with water to do baptism. You, you have to do it differently. Even the early church, in, in some of the earliest writings, made different exceptions based on the water use in that area. And so that what they may do is get three pots, and they would take those three pots, and they would pour them over you in the name of the Father. They'd grab the second one in the name of the Son. Grab the third one in the name of the Holy Spirit. Covering you with water, signifying baptism, but it didn't necessarily look like baptism looked today. It's not about the administration. It's about the truth. It's about the marking, the identifying with Christ and that one faith in baptism. Lastly, Paul says, we see our unity seated in God the Father who is over all, through all, and in all. This reminds us of 1 Corinthians 8, verses 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are all, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Paul wants us to see God's transcendence over everything, right? O over all. He wants us to see his eminence. That God is, is, is through all and he is in all. But who is this all? Some say it's believers in the church, but most likely Paul has in mind, based on other verses here in, in Ephesians, the whole cosmos, everything that has been created by this one God. He is over all. This is what should unify us. This is what we should rally around. These seven things. Notice there's a lot of things on this list that we fight about all the time. That's not on this list. As believers... As a Christian, do you find yourself 
walking worthy of your call in unity? Are you gentle, humble, patient, bearing with one another, promoting peace? Now, multiply that by a hundred. What kind of difference would that make in Lake City? If a hundred people walked worthy of their calling together. Talk about a city on a hill. Talk, talk about something transcendent. What a beautiful, beautiful expression of the gospel, the reconciliation of God, of enemies, to not just friends, but family, that would be. But before we can get to the hundred, we've all got to examine our hearts. And we've all got to see where we need to be walking in a way that is worthy of our calling. And over the next couple of weeks, Paul's going to help you. <laughs> He's going to help you look at some ways in which you may not be walking worthy of your calling. And, and I can tell you, because I'm reading ahead and I'm studying ahead, repentance is going to be coming. And I'm not saying that in judgment. I'm saying that out of experience. But man, what a glorious picture of the gospel that would be. Of a hundred people walking worthy of their calling. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for your good gifts, Lord, thanking you for all that you have done for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for all of the gifts that we receive because of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to be one. And Father, maybe there, there's someone here this morning that that your Holy Spirit has been drawing and, and, and pulling at, God. I, I pray this morning would be the morning that they would accept the free gift of salvation that you are offering. They would give their life to you, Lord. Joyfully wanting to serve you, walking in a way worthy of their calling not out of fear, but out of love for who you are. You are a God who loves his enemies, who makes the dead man alive again. You are glorious. And Father, for those of us who are here and who are seeking to walk in a way that is worthy of our calling, Lord, maybe... Maybe there are some things that we have been fighting about and dividing about, Lord, that, that aren't mentioned here. And Lord, we need to confess and repent of that divisiveness, that disunity. 
and walk worthy of our calling. And Father, as we went through those things, Lord, maybe one of them jumped out that, that we are struggling with. Perhaps it is the faith, perhaps it is the baptism. Taking that next step of obedience. Father, I pray this morning your Holy Spirit would empower them and encourage them to take that next step. To be one with you in, in all of these ways this morning. I ask these things in Jesus' name.